Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. So are you tired of uh, hearing about how great your book is yet? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I... The the funny thing is, like I'm I'm not used to talking this much, so that's been interesting. Is trying to like I don't know how people like Stephen A keep their energy up for for so long. Um, I guess it's a lot of fake uh, fake madness or whatever. Lots but, and lots of Red uh, Bull. Yeah. And <laughs> drugs. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, it's been a fun experience. And when you're, you know, when when I was writing it, it was it's really isolating to write a book, you know, when you're done, you don't know what the reception or reaction is going to be. So to see it been pretty positive has been, uh, really, really gratifying. Well, both, both David and I love the book. Fantastic read. I loved how you weaved the different stories of each individual player, but also incorporated the different angles of, of all of the players involved. Um, what made you want to write about the move from high school basketball directly to the NBA? So I was a senior in high school in 2001. So that was the same year that Kwame Brown, Tyson Chandler, and Eddie Curry were high school seniors. So I was a basketball fan back then and pretty much following their careers in real time. And you hear all the, the stories about how Kwame is going to be this next uh, all-star and Eddie Curry is the next Shaquille O'Neal, Tyson Chandler is the next Kevin Garnett. And you fast forward more than a decade later and I'm covering the league and it's almost like what happened to these guys and where was the proclamations for these guys different from the reality. So that was one. And then also for Grantland, I had done a few profiles on high school to pro guys and it just seemed like, you know, even the average NBA guys who had made the jump from high school take a guy like Gerald Green. It seemed like his path to just respectability was a lot tougher than the average guy. I mean, just in his example, he had to go play in Siberia before he kind of gained the maturity to become an NBA rotation player. So I think it was those two combinations. Most fans know the major names of players who went prep to pro, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, LeBron James, Dwight Howard. But what's the most fascinating uh, what's most fascinating to you that people don't know generally about the journey from prep to pro that maybe gets lost when when people discuss this subject? I think especially for the success stories, it's it's just crazy to me the the amount of dedication and uh, maturation it took to be able to do that because you know I know where I was at eighteen and if I was subjected to fame and and money and popularity at that point in time, it would have, I don't know where I would have ended up. A lot of that can go to 110 and, and just divert them in life. Um, you, you look at your life in high school and it's pretty, pretty much regimented. You're going to class, you're going to practice, you're going to do homework, you're going home. When you go to the NBA, you have a lot of free time now on your hands. You, you practicing only for a couple hours a day. Uh, most days and then you know you have money for the first time you have 
open time for the first time. And that's, that's a lot of, uh, that's a recipe for disaster for a lot of people. And I think using that time to master their craft is the thing that kind of separated uh, the guys who made it from, from some of the guys who didn't. With the 13th pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Charlotte Hornets select Kobe Bryant from Lower Marion High School in Pennsylvania. You profile Kobe Bryant and his entrance from prep to pro in 1996. Kobe Bryant inextricably linked with the Charlotte Hornets franchise. The Hornets selected Kobe Bryant with the 13th selection in the 1996 draft. Of course, as as most of our listeners know, the, the Hornets had an arrangement with the Los Angeles Lakers to trade Kobe. What our listeners might not know and what you write about is that the deal almost fell through. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the deal was a uh, contingent on Vladi Divac, uh accepting a trade to Charlotte. And I grew up in Southern California, so I remember this in real time too. I was kind of sad about Vladi leaving because Vladi was a was a cornerstone to the to the Lakers. And even though Shaquille O'Neal was coming, uh, Vladi was really ingrained in the Los Angeles community. He was a he was a good guy that everybody liked and appreciated and enjoyed. So seeing him trade it for for a high school player that nobody had really heard of at that time was was pretty much of a shock. And Vladi, for a while, threatened and contemplated retiring instead of uh, reporting to Charlotte. He had, his family was uh, from overseas and had made their homes in Los Angeles and had never lived outside of Los Angeles in the United States. So he really, really contemplated whether to retire, which would have just completely nullified that trade. Uh, Jerry West, the Lakers GM, wanted uh, Bob Bass just agree to it, and they could convince Vladi later. But uh, uh, Bob Bass said no way, and basically Vladi decided that the Lakers had been good for him, so he didn't want to just nullify this trade and negate this trade when the Lakers thought that they could become a much better organization. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, but I get the sense from from reading your account that the fact that the Hornets and the Lakers had a a backdoor deal in place helped Kobe Bryant fall as far as he did. Yeah, because uh, basically once the Lakers had shown interest in Kobe Bryant, his agent, Arden Tellum, stopped his workout. So Kobe didn't work out for maybe about half the teams that were that had those first 12 picks, and he didn't work out for the Hornets. So Bob Bass said that he wasn't going to take Kobe um, at all because he hadn't he hadn't seen him play, and so he had no plans of keeping him. And that was the same for for a number of teams. Um, and it was it was really interesting the way that Arntel was able to manipulate that draft in order to get Kobe down to the 13th pick because that would never ever ever happen in this day and age. So the idea that that Kobe Bryant likes to float around is that the Hornets never wanted him. But in your conversations with Bass, it sounds like that that Kobe kind of honed in on one team and didn't really want any of the rest of the teams. Yeah, he wanted to go to Los Angeles, and you know the biggest hurdle was the the Nets with that eighth pick. Their GM John Nash really wanted to draft Kobe, but he was overruled by John Calipari, who was the team's president and and coach at the time, just coming out of uh, being a college coach, and he was kind of frightened off uh, drafting a high school player at that time. It's something that John Nash really, really regrets to this day. But I, I think another interesting facet 
about this is that the Hornets got better when they traded for Vladi for that in the in the immediate uh, returns. I think Bob Bass won Executive of the Year after after making that trade. Yeah, and I think it's important, Jonathan, that that we understand. Like hindsight is always twenty twenty, and even after Kevin Garnett was drafted a year prior out of high school, it, it seems like a lot of the GMs and a lot of the front offices were still struggling with the idea that a that a prep star could make the transition into the NBA. Is that is that correct? Yeah, without a doubt, and a couple factors went into it. Uh, only a handful of guys had made the jump before. Uh, in the 70s, it was Moses Malone, Harold Dawkins, and Bill Willoughby, and then Sean Kemp is kind of, he enrolled in college, but he never played for a college team, so he's kind of in that class. And then it was Kevin Garnett. So that was five big guys who had made that jump. So Kobe was the biggest guard, and the thinking was that the big guys could assimilate into the NBA faster just because their bodies would allow them to. So there were there was that skepticism over over Kobe. And then also, you know, I think the biggest example of teams still being skeptical over it is that the Timberwolves could have taken Kobe. They just had the success of with KG the year before. KG wasn't the MVP KG, obviously, yet, but he had shown that he had staying power in the league and he was going to grow and keep working and get better. But the Timberwolves didn't want to kind of tempt fate twice in consecutive years and ended up taking Stephon Marbury that year. In communicating with Bob Bass, who again was the general manager of the Charlotte Hornets in 1996 when they selected Kobe Bryant in the draft, in in the communications with him, did you sense any kind of lingering regret about not? I mean, there was there was a handshake deal, but there were there was no concrete deal with with the Lakers in pra- in place. Did you sense any lingering regret about not keeping Kobe Bryant? No, I think that there's there's probably a He's probably tired of hearing about it, <laughs> and his his thing was, you know, if he was that, if everybody knew that Kobe Bryant was going to be Kobe Bryant, there was twelve other teams that could have taken him before they even had the pick, and you know, to turn a thirteenth pick into a starting center who's uh, pretty pretty good in this league was that's not too bad of a draft, you know. Other other guys got. That, uh, Vitaly Potapinko and Todd Fuller before Kobe Bryant was off the board. Uh, so we know from, and, and also reading in your book, Kobe Bryant uh, threat made some maybe direct or veiled threats to possibly play overseas if if another team took him before there was an opportunity for him to go to the Los Angeles Lakers. Do you think that had Bob Bass gone back on the deal with the Lakers and kept Kobe Bryant, do you think Kobe would have played in Charlotte? Uh, yeah, he would have, without a doubt, and he's he's even admitted uh, in the years since that it was all a big bluff, and he would have played with the Nets or the Hornets or whoever would have drafted him. You know, at that time, his dream was to play in the NBA. All right, let's move on from Kobe Bryant to a, a player he tried to imitate, dominate, overcome. He he now owns the Charlotte Hornets. His name, of course, Michael Jordan. You write a lot about him in this book. As an executive with Washington, he drafted prep star Kwame Brown, number one overall in 2001. Was he locked into Kwame Brown from from the beginning of, of the draft preparations, or, or what was the lead-up to that number one overall pick like? No, he, he wasn't. He was. He, they had focused on the three big high school guys at that time, 
uh, Eddie Curry, Kwame Brown, and Tyson Chandler. And those three guys had a lot of workouts before NBA draft teams kind of – it was kind of like a three-hitter race hitting down that, that wire. And basically there was one big final workout, uh, Kwame against Tyson Chandler, where they were already leaning toward drafting Kwame, but they kind of just wanted to have one last look. And Tyson Chandler left that workout kind of feeling that the Wizards were going to draft Kwame. Uh, feeling like he didn't have his best day in the gym and that Kwame was, got the better of him that day. And that's what ended up happening, is that they ended up drafting Kwame. Now, a lot of people, a lot of fans, I think maybe before the Anthony Bennett selection, thought that this was quite possibly the the worst number one pick of all time. But in, in reading your book, it seems a lot more complicated than that. And, and it gets very complicated when Michael Jordan decides to join the Washington Wizards and become Kwame Brown's teammate. How much do you think that that aspect of the story did more damage to Kwame Brown than this idea that you talked about earlier in the interview, this proclamation uh, over reality? What do you think, in your mind, what did more more harm to Kwame Brown's career? Yeah, I think it was a lot of different influences, and I think his relationship with Michael Jordan kind of veered suddenly. Uh, Michael went from being a kind of mentor, kind of playful guy who would kind of oversee Kwame's growth from afar to being a very, very demanding teammate. And we all know Michael Jordan liked to test his teammates by putting them in pressure-packed situations and kind of testing their resolve to see if they would be there late in the game. So Kwame, being a teenager, he, he just really couldn't handle that. And you know, I don't think there's many of us who who would be able to. I I, I can I can attest to that. I certainly wouldn't able wouldn't be able to handle MJ's pressure cooker. Um, <laughs> but but Kwame Brown would reunite with Michael Jordan and Rod Higgins, who was also with the Wizards organization at the time in Charlotte for a nice stint with the with the then Charlotte Bobcats. Uh, how does Kwame Brown's persistence and his his legacy? as that first number one overall pick from prep to pro. Uh, what do you think that that signals about that generation of, of prep to pro guys, that, that Kwame was able to stick it out, carve a niche? Well, it's it's funny because I think we look at Kwame's career as a, as a disappointment because he didn't live up to being a, a number one draft pick and didn't live up to being the, the guy that Michael Jordan handpicked to take in the draft where if you take a step back and you look at it and say, Hey, if Kwame had gone to the university, university of Florida for a year, you know, may have had a couple of his weaknesses exposed against better competition. Say he's a late lottery pick, late team pick. Um, we would look at his career a whole lot differently. He played a dozen years in the NBA and he was a, a, a pretty good defender. And, he, he just played way, way more and way longer than the average NBA career. So I think if we look at it from that perspective, we get a, a whole different measure of how we view Kwame Brown. Having written about several of Michael Jordan's missteps, Jonathan, how do you view his recent success as owner of the Charlotte Hornets? It's, I think he's finding a groove. and It's, it's taking a little while. I, I like uh, I like where they're headed and I like where they're going. And uh, I like Coach Clifford a lot. 
uh, you know, they had some disasters with, with Dunlap and I don't, I don't think Silas was, was the best, uh, position for that guy. And everybody knows what kind of happened with, with Larry Brown. So I, I like where it's going. Uh, Hornets power forward Marvin Williams was on the Hangtime podcast with Seku Smith, and, and he said he was glad he had one year in college. And his biggest reason was that the lessons he learned from Roy Williams and the North Carolina staff on training like a pro, eating like a pro, and those things, Jonathan, they seem like simple things, like learning how to eat properly. Uh, but it, it, guys you wrote about in this book, they struggled with those simple things. What? What went into that, do you think? I mean, the the NBA back in the height of this was a lot different than the NBA is now, where, I mean, they didn't really have anybody to hold their hands off the court. And, and that's a huge adjustment. You're living it away from home for the first time in, of your life. You know, some guys, it was the first time they had ever opened a, a bank account. So they're just... Uh, really, really getting experienced and exposed to life for the first time, a lot of them. So think about all the transition that they make, have to make off the court and then think about all the transition they have to make uh, away from the court where, I mean, that's just a lot coming coming at you. I think now the NBA is a whole lot smarter where they have developmental coaches and they have people who will tell you where to live, tell you where to eat, those type of things that, kind of really helped complete the, the transition rather than just throwing the person, the player, into it and saying, you're a professional now, let's go. Again, this is a great book. Showed all angles, players, AAU teams, colleges, prep academies, families, and the pro organizations that drafted these prep stars. With so many involved, is it impossible to point to a boogeyman that ended the prep-to-pro tunnel in 2006? Uh, yeah, that's, that's difficult because once again, there's a lot of different influences and factors. I think the, one of the biggest things that I think needs to be corrected is that there's, there's a lot of people who have a stake in the success of the players who made it and a lot of people willing to accept credit for, for guys who became superstars when nobody is will, really willing to, to accept the blame and responsibility of guys who didn't make it. Um, whether it's the NCAA, the NBA, agents, coaches, et cetera, where I, I just think there needs to be some type of culpability uh, for it. You know, and I'm, I'm not even absolving the players, but, you know, they were teenagers, and and when they had that chance to, to kind of make a name for themselves, you try and grab that as soon as you can. Well, we're, we're coming up on new collective bargaining agreement talks. Michael Jordan involved heavily in those talks as reported. Where do you, where do you hope that the conversation on the age limit rule heads in, in this next collective bargaining agreement? I mean, in a perfect world, they come up with a, some type of baseball-like rule where guys can either come out of high school or if they go to college, they have to stay for at least two years. And I think that way... They'll be much closer toward getting a college degree than this. You can't even call it one and done. It's just a, a few months and done. Uh, you know, and in that sense, also, a guy like Ben Simmons, he didn't really help anybody by going to LSU for just one year. He didn't help himself. He didn't help his school or his program other than just more money coming in for these first few months. But it's not like you can say that program is better off by hosting them for a few months. So, I mean, I would like to see that, but I, I doubt it'll happen. 
He's Jonathan Abrams. The book is Boys Among Men. Get it now. We just we just touched the surface uh, with, with this line of questioning. There's so much more in the book, so many great stories. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. I appreciate it. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99. And our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.